0: So this episode was brought to you by the letter P, P for Policy, P for people, P for Pacific Northwest Economic Region,
1: (laughs) and P (laughs) for Podcast.
0: And P for Podcast, and what a pleasure it was to join you. So welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection
2: of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands.
0: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. We are in the pop up studio in Calgary, Alberta, which is a lot of fun. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined with someone who just came off the stage from War, Chris Sands. Uh, Exit stage right.
1: Nice to see you. Exit
0: stage right. And you know what? I'm excited because we are going to talk about the Canada US border, one of our favorite topics on Canusa Street, and we're going to talk with one of the leading experts, actually. You're an expert, Chris. Uh, And we have a West Coast. Expert uh, that I'm really excited about. So why don't you introduce her properly and we'll get right into it?
1: Well, this is an easy one, Scotty, because Lori and I met when we, when I was teaching at Western Washington uh, in the business school, and she is a star. She was a star when she first came in, but she is the director of. The Board of Policy Research Institute, which is housed at Western Washington University. She engages in a range of research on the Canada US border, particularly the Cascadia region. Her topics of expertise are long. She does trade, transportation, human mobility, and security. She's also a global fellow of the Woodrow Wilson Center's Canada Institute. So you can see she has my double stamp of approval. We're um, really glad to have you here, Laura. I'm
0: really glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you. Well, uh Let's get started. You pay attention to the Canada-US border for a living. You're one of the smartest people, most thoughtful research people on it. How's it going? Give us maybe just an overview of where we are today. It's July of 2022. What's the situation of the Canada-US border? Well, I think the important thing for people to recognize is that
2: we still have border restrictions. You know, we we largely ease them, both Canada and the U.S., but they're still in place. So you still have to be vaccinated if you're a third country national or a Canadian to enter the United States. Um, There's no testing requirement any longer at the land or the air border. And then for travel to Canada, um, you have to be vaccinated with, of course, vaccines that are recognized by the Canadian government. And you have to submit the ARRIVE CAN trip manifest in advance of crossing. So um, it is a new border crossing environment, and while people are able to cross for whatever trip purpose, it does take a little bit longer for them to do so. So um, we're also seeing, I think similar to, you know, very many aspects of life and our economy, things aren't quite working the way that they used to. So there used to be sort of predictability in the system. You sort of knew it's a Sunday afternoon, the lineups are going to be long, or a Friday afternoon coming down to the U.S. And it's not quite working like that anymore. And so it's it's pretty messy. The wait times are long. They're unpredictable, even while the volumes are still at around 50 percent of what they were before
0: the pandemic. Volumes at the land border in particular. In particular, yes. So you, you just said a lot there. Let me let's let's uh, and thank you for that. Let, I want to I want to pause on a couple of things to make sure I heard you properly. And because a legislator here at the at this conference pulled me aside yesterday um And I hadn't focused on this. So you have to prove that you're vaccinated in mm-hmm. order to be able to enter the U.S. and to enter Canada? Yes. But okay. U.S. citizens are exempt from that entry when they enter the U.S. Got it. So if you're a foreign national yes. and you'd like to come to the U.S. and you're not vaccinated, no luck. No luck. Even if you... Okay. There, there's a small number of exemptions for specific categories, but
2: mostly, yes.
0: No. Got it. And I think I heard you say... um, and you were telling me a story earlier, so maybe share it with our guests. Um, coming into Canada, you have to have a certain kind of vaccine. Yes.
2: Yeah, so I had a Mexican scholar visiting me recently. I live just south of the, the border between British Columbia and Canada, and she was actually doing a comparative study looking at what's happening on the Mexican border and the Canadian border. And so she said, well, I'm going to do this arrive can thing, and then I'm going to just walk across the border. I said, oh, great. Um, and so she went in there to, to fill out her manifest and she saw that the Cancino vaccine, which was actually the vaccine that was given to all educators in Mexico, and she's a professor, um, is not acceptable by the Canadian government.
1: Is that a Chinese, uh, developed vaccine? It, it
2: is. And, and what she had told me was, uh, the U.S. at first did not recognize it, but there was enough sort of lobbying from the Mexican government that this is what we are vaccinating our educators with, um, that the U.S. does accept it now. So, pretty big disconnect, because she had traveled from Mexico to the U.S., and so she thought, okay, you know, I'm vaccinated, and, and I'm up to date and everything, and then she couldn't continue on into Canada.
0: And is there, Chris, uh, you can get into this too, but is there a is there a scientific health reason to not recognize that particular vaccine? Like, I, I haven't read the literature. Is there is there a reason for that, that we can hang our hat on, or no? Well, I'm not a
2: public health expert, but I think the consensus is sort of that some of the Chinese... Um, manufactured vaccines were not as robust as the Western And
1: there was a period of time, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, where the FDA had not approved the, the vaccines because mm-hmm. they weren't submitted for approval. And so I know I know we had that problem at, uh, at Hopkins. We, we had to take all the Chinese students and test them every day because they didn't have the right vaccine.
0: Interesting. Well, so, okay, that's the land border, um, confusing backups, all of that let's talk about the air environment a little bit because you read a lot in the papers, especially in Canada in the last couple of weeks about people spending hours and hours and hours and not getting across. We've all had our stories. Chris was late to this particular <laughs> conference because he got yes. tired of, So So um, talk to us a little bit about that if you would, what, and, and maybe also explain a little more what does arrive can mean? Like you said it was a manifest, but maybe, maybe explain it and what the does it live up to the purported benefits and all of that?
2: Sure. So uh, during the pandemic restrictions, Canada introduced the ArriveCan platform, which is a web-based or an app-based submission where a traveler sets up a profile, uploads their vaccine credentials um, prior to the test requirement being lifted. You could also put your test results in there. And then you tell the Canadian government what your trip purpose is um, and where you're planning to cross if you're traveling by air or if you're traveling by land, what your port of entry is. So it's really a way for them to collect advanced traveler information and sort of marry that with some public health um, requirements as well. And so that's required regardless of your mode of entry. So, you know, in the air mode, I think the consensus is arrive can hasn't been that big of a deal because airlines can communicate that requirement with their passengers If you're checking in, make sure you fill out your arrive can. I've heard stories of people at the gate and the gate agents are
0: helping them submit their arrive. I was, well, let me just jump in on that. I was just going to say, I actually think it's an impediment because if you're used to getting to the airport, let's say two hours early for your flight um, and you're stuck in a line behind somebody who isn't familiar with technology the gate agent is trying to help them. They've, they've got to, you know, download an app. Maybe their phone can take it. Maybe they can't. Like, I, I personally have missed a number of flights in the last couple of weeks, not because I didn't get there in time, not because I don't know how to use the ArriveCAN app, but because there is somebody in the in the line in front of me that doesn't, and, and, and we're all stuck.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the catch, right? It's sort of like any technology. When it works, it works really well. But when yeah. it doesn't work, it really gums up the system.
0: Yeah. um, But... Is there a benefit to it? Like, what's the purpose of it now? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I think Health Canada is still very keen to keep this in place
2: because there are still border restrictions, right? There's still a vaccination requirement. Um, There's still a quarantine requirement if you come down with COVID. So that mechanism, um, I I would say, I think Health Canada is really holding on to that as as a tool. You know, at the border, it's a little different. The Canada Border Services Agency, who has to implement this, isn't necessarily the one driving the bus on a ride can. So I think there's a bit of a disconnect between the public health agency and the actual border
1: agency. Lori, well, you were um, you were one of our great in, uh, experts that we consulted when we were doing the Wilson Task Force on Public Health on the U.S.-Canadian Border. And one of the things that came out of that, and I think you might have sort of uh, focused on this, is that after nine eleven, the border... Used risk management as a way to determine who crosses and who doesn't. And you need a certain amount of data, good passport or some other reliable document to make a risk assessment because they knew after 9 11 there'd never be no terrorism. Have, when I hear you talking about what Health Canada wants versus CBSA not being in the driver's seat, it makes me think are we. Do we need to relearn the lesson of risk management? Because I could see ArriveCan providing a basis for somebody to make a decision on whether the person was vaccinated and therefore a risk or not. But it, it isn't seemingly designed for border use. It's really just about what Health Canada wants to know. Can, can we fix that?
0: And, it, and before you do, explain the acronym. We do get paid by the acronym in Washington DC, <laughs> CBSA.
1: Oh, the Canadian Border Services agency, which is like CBP in the United States, Customs and Border Protection. So
0: what you both are saying is the border officers who normally make determinations about coming and going in sovereign territory, when you say they're not in the driver's seat, somebody else else is, it's Health Canada or health officials. Anyway, I just want to clarify that. yeah. Yeah, and
2: I think back to your question, Chris, that there's a real opportunity there for the the use of that advanced traveler information um to be sort of handed off to the border agencies who would who would modify that, right? Um and they're now in a situation where they can collect that information at the land border where they never were able to before. And so I do think it's a very powerful tool, but I think it's a it's a tool that shouldn't be sort of mandated in the way it is now because um there's a lot of confusion about it, but I think the opportunity is there to turn it into a risk management tool rather than sort of a mandated, um,
0: screening every single 100% person. What would it look like? What would a better way to do it? If, yeah. Better and, way to build a mousetrap, if you will.
2: Better way. And CBSA has, as expressed, can't afford to service agency, um, that they would like to, to leverage this tool in a way that expedites travel. So rather than putting in, um, the current information around what's your destination, what's your trip purpose, Um, Do you have customs declarations? You know, is is there things that you can be asked before you arrive at the border so that when you get to the border, that's sort of the final check? Like, yes, Chris, that's you and that's you on your Nexus card. But I'm not going to keep asking you all these other questions because I already know where you're going. I already know what your trip purpose is. You submitted this before you got here. So I have all this information about you. So it could really expedite the travel process, but it has to be modified. And it it really should be optional rather than manual.
1: How does that compare to, I know in the air mode we've had advanced passenger information where the airlines collect and let the uh, border inspectors know what's coming. We've never had that for the, the land mode. You think actually we could have an API or maybe advanced passenger information or electronic travel authorization built into the land border where we haven't had it before?
2: I do, and I think that's where a real efficiency gain could happen. The
0: question is, is the U.S. and Canada going to do that together?
1: Or That's a great question.
0: That is a, well, and, and it's a great question because we're asynchronous now. Yeah. Let's talk about that because we've spent decades. Um, the three of us have in different ways have been working on encouraging governments, uh, us and Canadian government to have common approaches to managing our common border. And it, we were doing pretty well. I would say, um, we shut down the border. That was, an effect, shutdown for discretionary travel uh, for the pandemic. But but after that, we're going in all different directions. It's completely asynchronous. It's like there's political permission for any government at any level to have its own decisions about who comes and goes. That, it seems to me that's problematic. What do you think? Absolutely. And, and, Chris, you sort of got at this at the panel this
2: morning that um, we didn't even define essential and non-essential in the same way. So there was sort of this, a little bit of smoke and mirrors going on when we said we're collaborating every 30 days, you know, we're in constant communication, but we were really doing things very differently throughout the restrictions. And I think that, unfortunately, has set the stage for us to potentially continue to go down these, these synchronous routes.
0: Uh, well, and a great example of that we're talking about a lot right now is Nexus. Yeah. So Nexus is this trusted traveler program um, that Canada and the United States innovated 20 years ago, and it was state-of-the-art 20 years ago, and what it allows is if you're willing to submit to an interview by a U.S. official and a Canadian official, and they determine that you're low-risk, you get a Nexus card, and that has enabled, mostly Canadians are the ones that use it the most, um, but it enables you to speed your way through the lines, and right now, with all of these epic long lines and crazy travel delays and whatever, Nexus has been Uh, You know, for the people lucky enough to have it has been wonderful, but we now know there are 350,000 Canadians that would like to either renew or get a Nexus card, and the Government of Canada has no enrollment centers opened. Maybe you could talk about that. And what, you know, so, but the Government of the United States does. So when we think about asynchronicity, there's a, there is a disconnect there. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And, um, you know, this should be low hanging fruit, right? This is a program that
2: both countries fully support and, and are really, really have bought into, and yet, we can't sort of figure out how to get it going again. And what's happened is the enrollment centers in Canada, when they were ready to come back online, U.S. Customs and Border Protection said, "Okay, um, let's do this," but we want our officers to be armed in the locations where the Nexus enrollment centers are.
0: Well, actually, let me let me let me jump in here for okay. a second Maybe because you know more about that. This that's that is how it is being reported, um, as I understand it. Uh, the U.S. and Canada have been talking um, for a couple of years, well, for several years. Since 2015, the Land-Marine-Rail-Air Preclearance Agreement was passed, which settled the question of, of who gets to, which law enforcement gets to carry arms and under what circumstance. That was determined in 2015. It was fully implemented in 2019, or almost fully implemented. And the only remaining question was, would U.S. law enforcement have, legal protections in executing their duties in preclearance and in enrollment centers. And the U.S. was making sure, making sure, making sure. And Canada I think was ragging the puck on that question a little bit. So we've had two years to work on it. We haven't worked on it. And it's really not about carrying guns. It's about in the exercise of your official duties, do you have the same protections in the preclearance booth or in the nexus booth, nexus enrollment, which is essentially the same function. That's what I think it's about. But anyway, the point is, we don't have agreement right now, exactly. and it's causing a backlog. Yeah.
2: yeah, and and again, this should be something that we can solve. Um, the ambassadors described it yesterday as as an irritant, but I think for those of us whose daily lives are really impacted by the ability to cross the border, it's much more than an irritant. Um, again, I think it should be low-hanging fruit that we can, we can figure out. And then there's also the question of, you know, during the... The latter part of the border restrictions, U.S. Customs and Border Protection opened up a pilot project to test out, you know, Zoom for government interviews for Nexus.
0: Um. Oh, really? For
2: Nexus, I believe it was just for renewals. Okay. So the idea is you, you've already done your biometric data collection. They already know everything about you. You mm-hmm. just have to do the interview mm-hmm. to, to renew. And unfortunately, that pilot project sort of ended with the pilot and we haven't seen that expand to something like Nexus enrollment centers in oh, Canada.
0: So, so maybe that's a solution. Maybe maybe you've just unearthed a potential. There's a bit of a legal hitch in there. Okay, um, let's hear it. That
2: uh, was described to me by a DHS colleague that um, the U.S. considers a nexus interview, whether it's a renewal or an initial application, as an application for entry into the United States.
0: So it has to be in person. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But well,
2: that could be a legal code. I mean, there, that could be something that could. Be be, you know, changed or, or piloted. Can we not pilot this like we piloted it before in Canada in a temporary fashion until we figure out how to solve this broader issue around protections and rights for sure. officers?
0: Well, let me ask the two of you something, if I could, Chris. Sure. Um, Nexus, again, state-of-the-art 20 years ago, great program, needs to get fixed now. I hope it will. But there are other programs um, that help facilitate entry into the United States, like Global Entry, like CBP One app, like could you talk about like are we are we focused on something that's twenty years old when what we really should do is leapfrog into the future? And, and you both have spoken at this conference and you're published on this. I'd love for both of you to talk about it.
1: Well, well Scotty, I, I, I don't want to uh, hog my own podcast because the I tune in for me. Yeah, uh, yes,
0: we do, <laughs> and I just <laughs> gave do. you the opening. So. All right,
1: fair enough. But uh, the, the global entry program really does look a lot like the Nexus program with a couple of advantages, only one interview. And it allows you access to the United States. When they set up the Global Entry Program, we saw data. The data suggested that more Americans would join that program than would join Nexus. And the reason is, Nexus is really good if you live near the border and you travel to Canada a lot. But global entry is good worldwide. So anytime you come back from Europe or from Asia, you can come into the U.S. with expedited clearance. You so, skip
0: that long line. Right. I mean, what we're talking about here, if anybody has flown mm-hmm. from anywhere in the world, when you land at, let's say, Dulles International Airport or JFK or whatever, you've just, you've just had a long, arduous day of traveling, maybe. Or maybe it was a lovely day of traveling, but it's been long. And then you land, and then you are in this line behind hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and it takes forever and what global entry does what nexus does is you get to zippity-doo-dah and it's a great it's a great feeling and it's there's a security benefit to the united states like you know, these are trusted travelers, so you don't have to spend as much time scrutinizing. And you
1: don't have those issues of of privacy. People volunteer to share their information. So there is that comfort level. And we see this all the time. You're in the, you know, elite club of the airline or you, you know, you do the things you do to get the better treatment. And then I think that has to be reciprocated. Well, what's great about the Global Entry Program was the U.S. began partnering with other countries and saying, look, you collect the data from your citizens. We attach it to a card. When they try to come to the U.S., the U.S. gets to see that data. But it resides with you in the foreign country, and you can protect their privacy, but they can volunteer it to us, and then we can access the database and has the same fields. We started with Britain, not surprisingly. We worked with, with several countries in Europe, but then we added Mexico right before the pandemic so that Mexicans could be part of a global entry program that didn't eliminate SENTRI, S-E-N-T-R-I. I don't know what it stands for, but it's the nexus equivalent on the southern border. That was more for the daily commuter types in the borderland region. But for people in Mexico City, for businesses in Veracruz and elsewhere, this was a much more efficient way to transit. But because we'd already invested in Nexus, there was almost a, a sort of sunk cost and Canada resisted the idea of going the same route because they had their own system. And I, I, I don't know what you think, Gloria. This is one of the things that's always very frustrating when we become very protective of the things we worked out together rather than thinking about how could we make this work for, for more of our citizens. Uh, do you, do you feel the same way, or do you think there's something else going on with Canada not necessarily wanting to be part of the the global entry program and keeping our uh, keeping our nexus going, or what's really going on there?
2: Oh, that's a good question, um, and I don't know that I have a good answer to it. I, I think people are wedded to what they know, right? So for me, I'm like, oh, the thought of a nexus program going away sounds sounds so terrible. But but the reality is, you know, I think it's I think it's a great program, but there's always going to be sort of the nexus and the non-nexus, or the global entry and the non-global entry. And what we haven't done is really figure out a sweet spot for all of those people who are not going to be able or never going to enroll in that type of program, but yet they're crossing the border more than, you know, once every five years or something. So so that that in-between group, we haven't figured out how to, again, sort of narrow the haystack um, without going them, putting them through this whole thing. And, and
1: what do you think the impact of that can... Fusion about what the rules are and how much trouble you get in if you haven't done everything just right on the casual traveler. I mean, we think a lot about people go over for a conference and they've planned ahead so they're going coming to Calgary for Pinwood for example. But in when you're living in a border region and there is has traditionally been a lot of back and forth between British Columbia and Washington State, do people kind of, Opt away from crossing the border unless they have family there in order to avoid the risk and the hassle because they're not sure if they go, drive all the way up there if they're going to get rejected? Is there a deterrent effect from the confusion that has come up around all these programs and what the rules are?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've seen the numbers of passengers in the land border environment in particular continue to decline since nine eleven, and We have not, we still are not at pre nine eleven cross-border volumes in the land mode, and I think that really illustrates that People are, d- are deterred from crossing the border. It's confusing, and it's really, really difficult to get good, trusting answers on what you can do and what you can't do, and, and that's a challenge.
0: So, why does it matter if it's efficient to cross the border? What is the impact um, on Canada, and the United States? Um, are we, you know, are we talking about something that is academic or convenient, or is it is it more meaningful than that, or more significant?
2: Um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll take that two two sort of approaches. Um, economically, it's it's very significant. You know, you could think about that in a broad way or or in a specific way for borderland communities that are built up around this ability to cross. There's businesses that would not function and have not functioned during the border restrictions. so So that's a very important component. And then I think almost from a soft diplomacy perspective as well, you know, if we're not crossing the border, if we're not seeing our friends and our loved ones and going out to eat on the other side, then how well do we really know each other? Right? Yeah. We're, we need to be making those connections in a very real and lived experience, I think, to really understand what's happening
0: yeah. with our neighbors. Yeah, I think, you know, it's like you go to a, a family wedding and there are the cousins that you've actually never met. You didn't, gr- you know, th- there are the cousins that you grew up and everybody went to this vacation together in the summer or hung around or lived near each other. And then there are the cousins you've never met. And it's a little awkward at the wedding. <laughs> um, so, well, we've only got a few more minutes here. Um, and we're incredibly grateful to you we know from this conference and I know from the the mail that we get, Chris, that that policymakers from both Canada and the United States uh, tune in from time to time to Kinesis Street. So, Laurie, what would your message be uh, to policymakers about the border?
2: Well, I think if if we can't get the sort of Political will or we don't have the capacity at the higher levels. Leave it to those of us who do this work every day to test things out, to do pilot projects, um, to provide regional solutions and, and get some evidence-based data to help support, um, what may be solutions or, or to test drive things that, that may or may not work. But I think those of us who are really, you know, impacted by the border, we understand how it works. We have a lot of good ideas and a lot of good solutions and we can support that policy from the ground up.
1: All we need to do is figure out how to work together on apps. We don't have an app for entering the United States, but maybe, just testing this out, we could reform ArriveCan Can and make it Arrive Canusa.
0: Chris, nobody wants the app anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You can have the app with a free podcast
1: just built in there. (laughs) Get
0: rid of the damn app. Yeah, you can listen to Canusa Street while you're camping out for hours (laughs) waiting to get cleared across the border. I don't know, man. Or or I'd
2: say, you know, (laughs) let's get to a place where we make the app optional. We test it out. Maybe we use the Nexus program to test out a bilateral mechanism to... Voluntarily submit that information, and then that becomes sort of like a ready lane concept, where you're you're sort of more prepared than the average traveler, and so you do get an
0: expedited passage. Yeah. I was just going to ask you that it, what the benefit of being optional was, because it's not optional to provide information to a government when you're coming into their sovereign territory. Right. But what you're saying is make it optional so that it, if so that if you want to go faster, um, you can provide all this information. The trick will be. And this is where it is. If you, if you The the deal has to work. So if you agree to give all of this information about yourself and your intentions, where are you going to stay, what are you going to do, what's your health status, whatever, the quid pro quo has to be in return for that. You actually are expedited. And I think what we're seeing now is no matter what you do, you're stuck. <laughs> you know, it takes forever. You might miss your flight, right?
1: Well, I, I think that's a huge opportunity not to jump on, on this, but trusted travelers and trusted shippers because there are a long time we were talking about companies that joined CTPAT or fast the Customs trade partnership against terrorism and free and secure trade two big programs they they still did not get expedited clearance across the border if they put all this money on the table there was no R- roi or return on investment and they were quite frustrated and there's got to be a way for us to deliver and to recognize that your trusted traveler and your trusted shipper probably your trusted testers they're the ones who would let you roll out a pilot project they'll humor you a little bit because it contributes to a better experience if it delivers
0: absolutely well listen Lori. thanks again it's amazing to see you in person and uh thanks for sharing some wisdom with us thanks so much for inviting me
1: you're very welcome you are my trusted chocolate (laughs) there we go (laughs) keep keep the collection together
0: amen I love smart professors. Yes. You're one and you're fabulous. And Lori Troutman, my gosh. I know. Is she brilliant? Or she is she is, brilliant?
1: She is. And I had the chance to when she came to Western Washington, I was still out teaching there and it she's just so impressive. Um, you know, she did her PhD at the University of Oregon. She's really good on some of these issues and she's there every day gathering data and giving a very balanced view of what's going on. We need to hear those perspectives. And she's just terrific.
0: Balanced is the right way to say it. And, you know, understated yet powerful. She's kind of the opposite of me.
1: <laughs> Don't know about <laughs> Overstated that.
0: Overstated no. and a little bit lame. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I mean, no. I just think that, uh, I just think that, that y- your work on the border, and I know you two collaborated through uh, your work with the, with the Wilson Center, is really important, and it's in, it, it's informing, or it ought to be informing, uh, the way decisions are made today. So I, f- I feel like we're going to get some of these problems solved, but it takes discussions like we're having yep. on Canusa Street, at Penwer, uh, at the Wilson Center, at the Canadian American Business Council, in order to advance the dialogue and present government not just with a problem but with a solution set. And I I think Lori is, is right at the front lines of that.
1: I agree. And one of the things about the COVID border restrictions that we'll be looking at for quite some time is how local voices and the individuals whose lives were turned upside down by not being able to cross the border really got very little voice in Washington and Ottawa where the big decisions were being made. And, Lori was listening and talking about People Point Roberts and other communities. Okay. Um, we can't make good policy if we don't have any attention to the people who that policy is affecting every day.
0: That's right. That's right. So this episode was brought to you by the letter P. P for policy. P for people. P for Pacific Northwest Economic region. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, P and, and P for podcast.
0: And P for podcast, and what a pleasure it was to join you. So yeah. there, we are never going to be rappers because our alliteration is...
1: No, but we're minding our P's and Q's here on the Oh, there
0: you go. So, excellent, excellent. And actually, in an upcoming episode, we're going to have a W. We're going to talk to the President Pro Tem of the Idaho Senate. Uh, Chuck Winder. So we'll do that next. Well, and that's we have another to cut P. All that out. Potatoes. <laughs> potatoes. Potatoes for Idaho. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about Idaho potatoes, we got to talk about P.E.I. potatoes. <laughs> P. for professors. <laughs> my God, where are we? Anyway. Pen policy professionals. Oh, this is getting bad. You know, we're getting punchy. P. for punchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, great to see you, my friend, as always. This podcast
2: is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show, and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts
0: or Spotify.